Bird, and you are listening to In the Wheelhouse. It was a spontaneous discussion between two old friends on the Chicago Cubs and baseball and motion picture-related topics. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on the final episode of ITW for 2019, the Washington Nationals are world champions. We'll take a look at what was a wonderful edition of the Fall Classic, a wealthy Astros fan compliments his D.C. counterparts. We'll take a look at the last two times a Washington, D.C. team won, the baseball, won a baseball championship. The Mets hire Carlos Beltran to steal their ship, to steer their ship, I'm sorry, but is there a problem in hiring these young guys with no experience? The Cubs look to refit and retool as they wait for the big money to pour in from their new network, and our classic movie discussion this week is Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Tom, for the final time this season, how are you doing? Uh, I think I'm about 46% today. I stayed up way too late last night. Did you really? Yeah, because you yeah. feel like you're going to get that extra hour. We had to set I, the clock. Yeah. You're like, it's, oh, it's, I can stay up all night. You know? Psychologically, as I approach the, the change, I start to add 15 minutes to, to certain hours. To try, I'm serious. I try to break it down. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that actually suffer uh, yeah. uh, depression over this time. That that doesn't impact. What you know what the depression is? Having to change all the damn clocks. It is. It is. It is. Well, you know what? It's the it's fact that, the fact that it's freaking nighttime at 4:30 drives me right. up. Right. That, that brings me down. But you know, whatever. We got to live with it. It's nothing yeah. new. I've done it before. I can do it standing on my head. Correct. So, Correct. <laughs> Correct. Well, it's always easy when you get the extra hour. It, 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 you know, in the spring, it's a little bit of a different. People are bitching on Monday morning after the 47-hour work weekend. <laughs> so, uh, so I want to I want to begin before we get to the baseball stuff. I want to begin with the fact that the Chicago teacher strike finally yeah. ended. What was it? 11 days of missed school. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's I I'm I'm on the internet a lot. I'm 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 in contact with a lot of Chicago public school teachers, even though. I'm no longer one, and you know I'm concerned that they didn't get the contract they really wanted, and I, I don't know. But then there's this political element to the way that they were so implacable in dealing with Mayor Lightfoot. I, the whole thing really left a bad taste in my mouth from somebody who's kind of observing from the outside, you know. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. Um, I think it was a very calculated uh, end to the strike, meaning that. The, the teachers union fully realized that on Friday, uh, November 1st, they, they had a uh, they were responsible for their COBRA payments on their insurance. Yeah. And so the rank and file were really pissed off about this fact that this was coming up because you've got people on insulin. You've got issues where, um, you know, it, it was going to have a huge financial impact to, I would say, the rank and file. And in my mind, they were always ending the strike on Thursday. That, that's, I think it was a fade out complete. And th the whole thing was an unsavory experience. The, the children lost out. Um, I think the teachers lost face to a certain degree. And also, you know, Lori Lightfoot, it wasn't, you know, her most shining moment either, even though we both said that we kind of agreed with what, you know, the hardball tactic that she was taking. Um, I just think the whole thing was unsavory. I, you know, I'm a union guy. I was in the UAW. Once you're in the UAW, you're always in the UAW. Uh, so I, in spirit, I, I support what, what what they were trying to do, what the teachers were trying to get accomplished. But as someone that has to pay the taxes, I was like, enough is enough. And your track record isn't that great. No, it isn't. <laughs> and it's going to be a hard road going forward. And it's five years. I think a lot of teachers are going to be upset about uh, what, when, you know, when we when they really get down to the language of the contract, I think they're going to find that uh, it wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. But oh well. Um, so let's move on to other. So, so what happened at Halloween at the Fontana House? Worst Halloween ever. At least. What? You mean because of the weather? Because of the weather. Weather was brutal. Snow, wind, cold. We were out there freezing. You yeah. know, I, I drove up to the neighborhood and the kids were already out there. And Julie, was, I saw her car and then I saw this crazy person with a hood trying to approach my car. And I'm like, get the hell away from me, lady. He was wearing a hood. Was this a Trump supporter? No, it was my wife. Oh, was my oh wife. sorry. I didn't recognize her all bundled up. And she's like, gotcha. what? So, 
But uh, but we're out there with a bunch of parents and a bunch of kids just walking around with my youngest daughter. And I am freezing my butt off. And I'm like, you know, yeah. Nova, let's get inside, get some food, get warm. She's like, no. And she runs <laughs> off to the next house. And she's faster than Nora. I was that way, too, man. I'm telling you, I was very, but, very ambitious on Halloween. <laughs> the other thing was that my older children are so status conscious conscience yeah. when it comes to halloween they want to trick-or-treat in the better neighborhoods man so did I. I think that's fantastic thinking i was i was exactly wired that way and not only that if you use the previous year's data which i know <laughs> that they're not like data mining but if they use the previous year's data they know exactly which houses to go to exactly <laughs> but they're like oh i've got a friend who lives in the glen i'm gonna go over there that's where all the king size candy is yeah. Which which neighborhood gives out the fewest apples? That's really that's that's, a, that's how we judged it. That's the one you want to. Avoid. You know, you know. I've told you this before. I'm the oldest of eight kids, and uh, we're all kind of one year apart, so we all kind of grew up together. That we we did trick or treating prior to the early '70s, and that was the golden age of of Halloween because there was no real bad guys out there putting razor blades and that that stuff didn't exist until really the '70s. After the 70s, it completely changed Halloween for kids and not for the better. But when we were kids, literally, there would be six of us, I think, at the time, all with pillowcases, hitting a three-block area. Coming back, my mother had a giant king-size sheet on the floor. We had to pour out our into our own little piles and then go back out and hit some of those same houses again. And my, and my mom, we would get back, and my mom had, had taken her street tax. All the Mars bars, all the Snickers bars, and all the money would be missing from our piles. That's hilarious. That is hilarious. <laughs> that is a great. Uh, that's I, I love. I wish I'd known your mom better. I wish I yeah. had. Oh yeah. But anyway, all right. So let's let's get into the baseball, and let's begin with the fact that the Washington Nationals won the World Series. This is the First time ever for their franchise, which yeah. originated in Montreal. Right. And it's the first time that a Washington, D.C. team has won the World Series since 1924. And the first time that Washington has won any sort of baseball championship since uh, 19, I think, 48. Since yeah. the, when the Homestead Grays in the Negro League won the uh, Negro League World Series. So right. uh, it's a long time coming for the people of that town. There's no doubt, and and when you look at it, it, it the most improbable of World Series, and I, and I think you know, in your in your show notes, you correctly stated that it was a near near classic, and I think it just falls short. I'm with you uh, that it's not, for example, it's not as good as 2016. It's no, not as good as a extra inning seventh game World Series. All those go to the head of the class, but in talking about seven game World Series, it reminded me so much of the 68 series where Detroit was down three games to one and came back to win uh, against Bob Gibson, even more improbable. But the reason why I could do the comparison is because the Tigers were down to their last out so many times, and so were the Nationals. The Nationals were in a back up against the wall five times in that playoffs. And also, first time in the history of sports in North America that the, the away team won every game. Wow. First time yeah. in any sport. That is amazing. It really is. And you gotta you gotta take your hats off to Washington. I mean, and yep. again, you know, it, it was a satisfying World Series. It, it it won't be counted among the greatest ever played, but there were some really exciting things that yeah. happened, you know. Yep. And uh, I wanna talk about a few of them. I wanna begin with Juan Soto, who I think is just a wonderful player. He's young, he's brash, he's talented, both physically and technically. You know, um, he's, I think, a more accomplished hitter that he reminds me of Javi Baez, but he's a better hitter than Baez, I think. And uh, yeah, he's, he's more pa he's definitely more patient. And, and the statistics of bear out the fact that in a four at bat night, each at bat gets better from a statistic yeah. standpoint for Soto. He actually and if he's facing the same pitcher, he has a he makes huge adjustments even at the plate um, that are incredible. All those things are true. I just think that he's an ass, and, and he's a 21-year-old ass, and, and, and I think that he'll just outgrow that. I think he's just kind of a play baby, as my teachers used to say about me. Uh, I think he's kind of a play baby, and I think that 
Um, you know, it, what started with the whole bat carrying thing that uh, right. I sent you a note that George Will referred to uh, was done by uh, Alex Bregman. Alex Bregman had hit a monstrous home run yeah. uh, and, and made the mistake, as he admitted later, that he carried his bat all the way to first base. Yeah. Well, where I come from, <laughs> I think the runner should be called out. That's the that's the rule that it used to be, and I think the major leagues could fix this issue real quickly, saying if you cross this line with the bat, you are out. Doesn't matter what your hit uh-huh. is. It's it's the same thing if if a runner that hits a home run passes a runner in front of him, you are out. That is the that's the rules of baseball. So um, if you touch first base and you still have the bat in your hand, you're out. Like yeah, that. yeah. I, I just think if Bregman, you met, when I when I saw it live, I was like, "What are you doing? Put your bat down, buddy." That's that's a yeah. that's a little league flag, right? At the very least. And then what happens is Soto comes up later, it hits does. a monstrous home run, and does the same thing. Only his was intended. Bregman said he got lost in the moment, even though I don't buy it. Like wow. when you hit a home run, the bat should leave your hand, and and you know. Not flipped up in the air like some guys do. Just drop it down like Jim Brown would do if he played baseball. Um, I don't mind. Well, I tell you, though, I don't mind a little bat flip, you know, uh, at home plate. I think uh, that's nice to see. I think that's good for the young fan. I'm not yeah. so old school on this that I can't appreciate uh, some of the theatrics. But uh, but I do think that that whole thing was rather bizarre. You know, the carrying the bat to first base, both of these guys. It reminds me of... Major League, the movie, when uh, Jesus or Jose Serrano carries his bat all the way around the bases, you know, so when he hit a big home run in that game, in that movie. All I I know is I grew up watching Bob Gibson pitch, and I'm telling you right now, if you do that to Bob Gibson, you're getting a hit right towards your, you're getting a ball right at your chin on the next at bat. That's just the way baseball kind of resolves these matters. I kind of like it. It's bad that there's headhunting, but... It's equally bad that you that there's certain unwritten rules of baseball, and you don't show up the pitcher, you don't carry your bat to first base. That's ridiculous, and I I think the 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 batter should be out. That they should fix it the, if they if it became a big problem. The way you fix it is just say, okay, you're you're out the next time you do that. So. Well, now the next thing I want to mention about this is that uh, one big part of why the Nationals won is because Steven Strasburg and Max Scherzer are fantastic pitchers. I mean, those guys are just hosses, and uh, they would even not... When, even when they don't have their best stuff, which was the case in the first two games, they are still fierce competitors and gamers. They're not... They give no quarter, ever. Really, Particularly really Scherzer. Yeah, Scherzer is just a bulldog. You know, um, I mean, Strasburg is more like... Uh, you know, he's not as... I, I, I don't see him as tough-minded as, as Scherzer, but what what he is is just uh, he's like a Ferrari. He's just yeah, such yeah. a great sort of machine of a pitcher. He's yeah. right. He's so hard to hit. And he's not going to be back next year, by the way. He he exercised his option and uh, he's leaving behind essentially four years and a hundred million dollars uh, yeah. to go out and test the free agent market. Do you think he's going to get? Oh, absolutely. Well, the the market value for him is between thirty three and thirty five million now a year. So yeah, he's going to make some more money. I think when it's all said and done, it's going to be eaten up by taxes and his uh, agent. But yeah. but 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 don't rule out the na- the Nationals making a run at him. All it means is that the Nationals have to pay more, just like everybody else will have to pay more. That and, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. and, and it's warranted in the sense that you know he had a really solid year and he was lights out at the five and zero in the playoffs. Five yeah. and zero. I mean that's just can't, can't top that. You you. And, and it really, I think also the, <clears throat> the series showed, the playoffs showed the value of having these great starting pitchers, you know, and how much of an advantage that is for the home team, for the team that has, you know, so. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, it's, there's, and we'll talk about you, Darvish, here in a minute, but there's some players that give teams discounts, but, but Strasburg, wisely so, fresh off the seventh game win of the World Series and the MVP um, of the World Series, it is, you know, why not test while his value has yeah. never been really higher, except maybe when he was 20? No, you can't. You cannot fault him for exercising that right. I mean, he built that into his contract. Right. He do it. He should do it. 
So yep. you got to play by the rules under the corrective uh, under the uh, collective bargaining agreement as it stands today. Well, speaking of another free agent, <clears throat> let's talk about Anthony Rendon, who also yeah. had a phenomenal series. Yeah. That guy is just he is so cool, man. He is so calm. He is like a mountain lake. He is just yeah. ever too excited. When he does something great, he's always just the same steady sort of presence. I mean, reminds me a little bit, I think, of Al Kaline. You know, just a guy yeah, that's yeah. very calm. You know? Yeah, it, he reminded me more of, um, I can't think of the guy's name that was dis- ultimately became a disgraced uh, steroid user. We, he started out as a Cub, and we traded him early on, I think, in the Sutcliffe trade back in 83 or 84. So Carter, Mel Hall. No, no. He, uh, but the point is, he was really serene and, and, a, and a really oh, quiet yeah. player. What's that? Rafael Pal- Palmero. Yeah. Correct, correct. Palmero. That's who he reminds me of. Um, but also K-Line as well. But K-Line had a little of, of a, you know, one time he broke his hand punching a wall in the 67 season. So he had a, you know, he didn't ever exhibit it on the field, but K-Line could be testy, you know, at, at, at different times. The thing about Rendon is, for me personally, is I think he's the most attractive free agent that's out there, and that includes Cole and um, yeah, because he's an everyday player and he's a game changer. And as much as I really do appreciate the talent of Juan Soto, and I think he's going to be great for years to come, like I said, he's a play baby, whereas Rendon's not. Rendon is an adult. He really correct, is. Correct. Correct. adult who correct. absolutely correct. knows what he's doing. I and mean, he's unflappable. He's a big game player. He's relatively healthy. If you think about it, during the season, he just he's a he's a basically a shot and beer guy that comes in and does his job and doesn't you know he doesn't get caught up in a lot of controversy like other players of his talent uh, have done. So uh, to me, as if I ran the Cubs, he'd be the number one target. Wow, yeah, yeah. wow, that's amazing. You have to sell Chris Bryant off, but uh, that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> why can't now, we? Have, I want to talk why about. Can't we have both and put Chris Bryant in the outfield, but. We'll, uh, speaking we'll of chat. Cubs, uh, speaking of Cubs, let's look. Let's look at a former Cub, uh, and that's manager Dave Martinez, who's the who used to be the bench coach under Joe Madden. You know, mm-hmm. he had that outburst in game. What was it? Six game six, right. Right. where um, there was the play at first base, and the umpire ruled that the uh, interference call. Yeah, it was. Yeah, did, that he had run out the play live? Huh? Did you see the play live? I did. I did. Yeah, me too. Me too. And it was a terrible call. It really was. I the world. I, I kind of agree, and it's a judgment call. Certain judgment calls can't be reviewed. That's one of them. Um, but the issue is Martinez has a heart heart condition, yeah, and yeah. and a serious heart condition. And in, in fact, it's basically been written that he won't live a very a completely long life because of that heart condition. Eventually, it's going to kill him. And I thought, hey, yeah. dude, you're a bull of a man. I get it, but. I would be cons- I would like you when you start throwing coaches around. I understand you're strong and all that. I just was worried about the guy. I was like, dude, it's bad, but it ain't that bad. Well, did you hear him in the press conference? He was saying, you know, one of the fans out there was saying, Dave, your heart. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm glad he's OK. I hope he's sure. OK. Certainly. And, and congratulations to Dave Martinez on a job well done. I mean, and you'll never buy another beer in Washington again. That's right. That, I mean, you're talking about a guy who's managing a team that started off 19 and 31, and you came back from that and won the World Series. He did a great job. You know, you know it, it, when you when you break down the the Nationals fan base, it's a very interesting fan base. You know, there's there's quite a few intellectuals that are big Nationals fans that obviously live in the Beltway. Yeah. Um, but but you know, it was kind of evident last Sunday when the President of the United States showed up uh, oh, oh, to, to the World Series game, and uh, he was really really booed by by the Washington Nationals crowd. Um, I, I knew, I thought he was going to take a beating. I just didn't think it was going to be that bad of a beating that he took. Well, you know, I mean, what can you say? Uh, people uh, don't like this guy. Um, I, 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 but we'll see what happens when it comes yeah. down to the 2020 yeah. election. Let's right. see if that's the reality. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, there, he's definitely unpopular. The things he says, the things he does. But- yeah, it, my my point is not about Trump himself. Forget about him, and I try to at every chance I get. Um, 
but it's just about the national fan. How how their fan base is just a little bit different than yeah. Boston and and in New York. I think New York he would have had an interesting reception as well, just based on some of his comments that he made. But I just thought it was kind of interesting that the Nationals fans have been long suffering and they did not expect to win this World Series. No, they expected not- it to win a couple years ago, but I'll bet you in their heart of hearts. When they were what? They were 18 and 31 after the first 15 games or something like that, 50 games. There's no way they thought they were winning the World Series. I don't buy it. Well, that's why it was so satisfying. And also, it shows that a team with nothing to lose is the most dangerous. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. The Astros are playing, you know, and I I mentioned this last week, they're playing for their legacy as an organ, you know, as a dynasty. I mean, there's so many, you know, so they're playing to sort of burnish their credentials is one of the greatest teams ever. And they, they got ambushed, man. And, and they, they did. It, and, and basically what's going to happen if they start to decline is that they're going to be like the Atlanta Braves were in the nineties. You know, they only won one world title and that could be, you know, maybe what the, what they were dogging out the Cubs after the Cubs won theirs is yeah. a true truism today that basically world series are not, you know, two or three year dynasties anymore. I'm sure we'll see it many times in the future, but it's not happening right now. They're one offs. Yeah, you're right. You know, you mentioned Trump and I, I wanted to, to to make another point about how Trump sort of uh, relates to the series. John Doolittle, the reliever, the left handed reliever for the Nationals, has stated publicly that he refuses to visit the White House when right. uh, the Nationals are invited as, as championship teams are often invited to do so. And he, he said, you know, politics aside, I have a brother-in-law who has autism. And when Trump made fun of that reporter who was disabled, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's why I'm not going to go. And, um, yeah. you know, there's a consequence for the things that this man does. And, and this there's, is there's no doubt about that. And I used to back in the George W. Bush days, I used to say, look, I don't I don't agree with George W. Bush. But if the president invites you to the White House, you got to go. Um, however. That was all out the window with the, yeah. with this president. He is he is to me sullied and soiled the presidency so much that there's no way I would go. And by the way, I'm pretty sure Doolittle's not the only national that's not going to the White House. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I we'll just see how it all shakes out. But uh, yeah. you know, I, I mean, but it was a, gr- a great World Series, a seven game, you know, hard fought. The 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 way team won every game, which was just odd at at different points. I'm pretty sure after last Sunday and the basic dominating performance by Cole, Houston was going home winning three games in a row thinking they're winning the World Series. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I don't know whether A.J. Hinch gets criticized for some of the moves he made. but Well, the thing is that he didn't bring in Garrett Cole in Game 7. And, you know, I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I mean... So it was two, I believe it was two to one or two to nothing at that point where he could have brought in Cole. I, you know, he, he had just pitched and I think you run the risk. And, and again, I don't know what, what the book is on Cole. Cole might be one of those pitchers, the pitching coaches know, that can't pitch on three days rest. Yeah. Like they've, they've ascertained only the big daddy horses of all time, the Randy Johnsons. The Walter Johnsons, these, these uh, uh, you know, Nolan Ryan, even though he didn't really play in the World Series, um, would, would be these guys that you can bring out on, on short rest. Scherzer's a guy that can do it, too, by the way. He's, he's pitched next day after pitching a full game. But not all pitchers can do it. And I just wonder, is, is, is Cole one of those? Because if he's not one of those, then I'm with you 100%. Houston, I think, was negligent in not throwing the kitchen sink out there. Because remember, one of the things I don't like about a Game 7 World Series is that it's it's not managed like any other game. Right. Like right. All bets are off in a Game 7. You're, you're going to put every player that you can, every pitcher you can, the whole bullpen's going to get worked, except for one thing. If you go into extra innings in a low-scoring tie game, you're in big trouble if your pitching staff has been depleted by the 7th and 8th inning of that game. And so... I don't know at that point if AJ was thinking that that was a, a potential and he wanted to keep him, but there it, it, you can criticize it, but I'm sure that Hinch had a reason why he didn't do it. Did you hear Cole's comments after the game? He's like, well, you know, after game seven, he's like, I'm no longer an employee of the 
Houston Astros. Which know. is ridiculous. Even if it's true, that's ridiculous. Bask in the glory of the title and shut that. That's one thing I don't like about more, uh, modern sports is is how tied they are to money. I wouldn't have, if I was him. I wouldn't have said boo even if I knew I was leaving just to not piss on anybody's parade. That that just cold. That was just bad. That was a bad scene. <laughs> So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the last time uh, a team from Washington won the World Series. Yeah. All the way back to 1924 when the Washington Senators defeated the New York Giants in seven games. Yep. Three of the games or uh, three of the games were decided by a four to three score. The opening game, game one, went seven, uh, 12 innings and game seven went seven innings when Walter Johnson won the game in relief after he scored the winning run as a pinch hitter. So yeah. Yeah. it was a tremendous World Series, <laughs> that one was. But um, there's a player who played on that team who may be the greatest player that no one has ever heard of, and that is one Sam Rice. Uh, Sam Rice was career 324 hitter, tremendous yeah. player. Yep. Um, He's a Hall of Famer. He is, he a, is Hall. a Hall of Famer. He is a Hall of Famer. He <laughs> is 13 hits shy of 3,000, right. which is amazing. Because he played in an era when people didn't really care about 3,000 hits, where it wasn't important. Uh, and, and he was given well, they, a didn't, they didn't know that that was going to become the barometer. Right. They didn't know that, oh, 3,000 hits is a big deal. Right. So, you know, that, that it's a very hard thing to achieve. And he actually was given the chance when his uh, friend, Walter Johnson, was uh, managing the Cleveland Indians to come back and uh, maybe get those 13 hits, maybe at the age of 45 but he declined, he declined the offer. But what's interesting about Rice is that uh, in a World Series that happened in 1933, he made a tremendous play against the Giants. This was a World Series that the Senators lost. He made a tremendous play where he goes and makes a, a, a circus catch in center field. Um, where he, It's a backhanded catch. He leaps over these temporary stands that were added. He crashes into the fans. He's there for about 10 seconds. And then he pops up holding up the ball. The umpire calls him out and everybody goes nuts. You know, the, 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 all these Giants fans are like, you didn't catch the ball. Somebody gave it to you. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they, they, they appeal to Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the baseball commissioner who's yeah. there. And he rules that the umpire called him out. So the player's out. Now, this, this play didn't uh, decide that World Series. You know, no. so it wasn't that controversial. But for a long time, Rice was questioned as to whether or not he really caught the ball. So later on, when he had made the Hall of Fame, a few years before he died, he announced that he would give an account on Hall of Fame's Hall of Fame stationery. He would write his account of the play to be sealed and opened upon his death. Mm -hmm. So he put that away. And uh, and so when he died, it was finally unsealed and opened. And uh, it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous account of the play. And if you know anything about it, actually, it's uh, I've, heard, I've heard of it. I, I have read about this. Yeah. But uh, he, he basically goes through a sort of a, he, he describes what happened, where where he was when the ball was hit, how he saw it, how he tracked the ball, how he leaped at the last second. He said the ball hit the center of the glove. He had a death grip on it, He crashed into the stands. He felt he was knocked unconscious, which is a little bit of a, a sort of a, a, that, that kind of maybe not may not. It doesn't speak well of his account, but he says he was sort of stunned. But then he comes up and says, at no point did I lose control of the ball, which I thought was a tremendous way to sort of uh, end his life and his career. You know. I do too, but it's just kind of like uh, anticlimactic. If that's the case, why did you have to wait till you were dead to say it? Uh, I know, to me, the only the only thing would have been interesting if he would have said, "Yeah, fan reached into his pocket and put that ball right in my glove." You know, well, that would that would have made a better story. I want to I want to encourage our listener out there to 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 look up Sam Rice and this story about that play. Yeah. But but the other reason is is that. Rice was a very sort of, he kept his cards very close to the vest. Right. And he was married. He had a daughter who uh, went on to become a, a PhD in education. And yep. she said that, you know, he was very, very quiet, never showed a lot of emotions. And, uh, and what his daughter and his wife never knew is that when he was a young man, he had been married and had children beforehand who died in a tornado. 
uh, and he never, ever told his wife or his family what had happened. And his wife was stunned. His daughter was stunned. And he just said, well, I just felt it was my burden to bear. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, it's just that he really could keep a secret, this guy. Yeah, no doubt. That That's impressive just, that, you know, in the world, the texting world we live in today, it's just impressive that you could keep your mouth shut that long. Um, but I also think it was kind of what he was trying to do was a noble thing. I don't think he was trying to be disingenuous or no. deceitful. I, he was he, it was a tragedy that he didn't feel as though he wanted to burden anybody else with. I thought. I th- it, you know, people it's were just, just different. It's the era. It's the era he was raised in, Tom. It right, was, right. You know, a different time. So right. now, another thing I want to mention about the World Series is that an Astros fan <laughs> went to Washington D.C. An anonymous Astros fan went to Washington D.C. to see Game Five, and he was so impressed with how nice the uh, Washington fans were yep. that he took out a quarter-page ad in the Washington Post saying, "Hey, my family had a great time. Thanks for being yeah. such great hosts." We loved you, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that adds like four or five thousand dollars. So you know, that's not not a cheap thing to do. So, but but also, if if you've ever been out there, and and you know, and I haven't been to a Nationals game yet, but I went to a a Camden Yards game, which, by the way, some of those fans became Nationals fans depending on where they lived. um, We're always very, very. cordial and nice and respectful it's not like some team some areas that you go to in, in major league baseball where you're going to get abused you know yankee yeah. stadium detroit chicago pittsburgh philly san comes francisco, to mind. LA, chicago. Yeah, yeah exactly well yeah. though and out in la and san francisco you could lose your life depending on who you support out there right. so but but i think the nationals fans are, are are like i said are pretty pretty educated i'll bet you per capita they're some of the most educated um ba- uh, people um, that are baseball fans and they're respectful. And, and so I'm, I'm not surprised by that at all, despite what happened. And by the way, this fan went to the same game that Trump was at. So he witnessed that the yeah, fans so, kind of, not, that's as bad as you're going to see the fans be. Um, it, it's that they boo. <laughs> well, I think part of it is that everybody who lives in Washington is, is not from there. Nobody's from right, there. right, right. And you're I think right. That, so a lot of these sort of deep partisan loyalties that, that come out in Boston or New York or Chicago, they, they just don't exist. I mean, right. people there are just happy to have a good team that they can follow and go see. You know what I mean? So it's not as uh, they're not as angry. You but know what but I mean? you're right. The fact that 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 no one is from there and the only ones that are are children of politicos that were born there. They're the only ones there. It's like second, third generation, but you're right. Nobody actually is from that area. It's an interesting observation. All right. So let's move on to other things that are happening in baseball. The Mets hire Carlos Beltran to be their manager. They hire a guy with no experience uh, to replace a guy who in Mickey Calloway, who also had no experience. Do Do you think this is a good hire for the Mets? You know, I do. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of talk right now about managers that were players, you know, a minute ago, not having experience as big league managers. And I'll just say you're never going to get experience unless somebody gives you the, an opportunity because you cannot manage at the major league level anywhere else, including in the minor league system. You're in such you live in such a, a bubble that. You know, a guy like Beltran obviously is respected enough, and he did something in the hiring process that the management was like, hmm, well, we're, there's synergy here. We're we're kind of on the same page of, of the way you think and, and look at things. The same thing with Ross. And I'm going to talk about Ross's second interview when we talk about the Cubs. But I think, you know, it was interesting to me that the Mets did not hire Joe, Giri- Joe, uh, Joe Girardi. Yeah. Joe Girardi, because Girardi was – to me, a more likely fit for the Mets than even and then even Philadelphia. He's managed in New York, but the idea that they went to, for Beltran over him that says something. Well, I think that they were beaten out for Girardi. I think they probably wanted Girardi, but the Phillies kind of beat them to the punch and gave him a nice offer. And I don't I think that's where maybe, maybe, but uh, but but there I, is I'm a saying. problem. I I think there's an, a problem when you hire these young guys who've never managed before. And I think it was evident with Dave Martinez in the World Series in the sixth game when he was going crazy over that call um, that it's very, very hard to hold a young guy back from tearing out the umpire. You yeah. know what I mean? 
It took two coaches, and they couldn't hold him back. Right, and, and the guy's got a heart condition to boot. Got but, heart. Yeah, I mean, but, but I think that you know, baseball history is is chock full of players that were managers, players that were managers while they were players. You know, they're, they're, and and were successful. Usually, it's a catcher, by the way, for some odd reason, um, that that plays that role. But that has happened before, and it's been successful. In the case of Beltran and and Ross. Both of those teams, both of those young uh, ex-players, are inheriting fairly decently talented teams. So they're, I would think, I would not give a Carlos Beltran a, a complete rebuild job if I was an owner of a team. I just wouldn't. I, I, you know what I'm saying? So there, there are pieces there, you know, among the Mets that make them formidable. I mean, they have the Rookie of the Year. They have two yeah. great starting pitchers. You know, right. they, they, there are some things going on there to build around and make them competitive. <laughs> now, they're in a very tough division with, with one team that's won the World Series, another team that's desperate to, and another team that won the division. So, you know, it, it, <laughs> it's going to be really interesting what happens. Yep, there. yep, yep, yep. And don't forget about Atlanta. <laughs> right, that's what I mean. They won the division. So, you know. Right, 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 right. But uh, but but all right. So let's move on to the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago Cubs have a lot of work to do going forward. They just hired a new manager in David Ross. I think it's a good hire. But uh, there was a recent interview on The Athletic with uh, in The Athletic uh, with Tom Ricketts. And he sounds like a guy who's not really, you know, with this new network coming up, the, the marquee network, it's supposed to be a big windfall for them. He's not sounding like a guy who's ready to spend a whole lot of money. Correct. Correct. I don't know what we can expect going forward. Um, They don't seem to have a lot in the cupboard in terms of prospects. How they're going to retool and refit this team is going to be really tough. You know. Yeah, I was very discouraged after reading that article because I do. I I was reading between the lines that I'm like, okay, they're not going to be spending any big money anytime soon. And so, if that's the case, then I think they should move towards a rebuild. If 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 I if I was running the 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 player side of the Cubs and I had that feeling like the manager or I had that directive I because let's be honest the Epstein and Hoyer know exactly what the what the ultimate plan is and if the plan is not to spend a lot of money then I think I would maybe look at look at it differently and start to dismantle and I would trade some big players off for for because they have to rebuild that farm system used yeah. to be a, a great farm system but as the article points out Epstein basically had to rape and pillage to 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 get players to buy some of these players and gave away as we've talked about some big daddy talent yeah like Larry Torres comes to mind and no, yeah. well, the biggest one is um, uh, the guy on the, the kid on the Yankees. You bet it. Oh yeah, Torres, 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 Glaber Tor- Torres, and then you know um, Eloy Menes on the Sox. I mean, it's just the point is the Cubs. Unless you're going to buy big, I think you need to 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 break it up. Well, I, I think make some bold moves. I, I don't think you're going to see the deep dive into the standings that we saw, you know, early in uh, Epstein's tenure. You know, I don't think you're going to see 100 losses. I think you're going to see a team that's competitive, right. uh, that may contend for a division, but uh, is not a team that they're really going to invest large sums of money with the intent on winning world championships. You know what I mean? Well, and, and so that's fine. I think you should tell your fan base that, by the way. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't. You shouldn't try to uh, <coughs> sell them a bad bill of goods. Which I kind of re- the Ricketts article made me think like. Okay, so you're going to kind of play a political game here of not really speaking about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is you're not spending. You're not opening up the vaults. And, in fact, my guess would be, if that is the case, that they will eventually open up the vaults, maybe in 2026 or 2025. But the point is is that they need to shed the players that won't be on the team at that point. And I think whoever, you know, Lester, whoever those guys are that are not part of of the next big spending part, they need to get rid of them. That's what I think. You're saying the sooner the better. The sooner the absolute better, because the sooner means the better uh, talent we're going to get. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you make a point. And now a big part of going forward Finally. Is, is a man named Hugh Darvish, who yeah. had an option to uh, become a free agent this year, but he yeah. decided to stay with the Cubs. Uh, and he's coming off a monster second half where he struck out the phone book. You know, he yeah. just basically struck out everybody. 
And I'm, I'm glad to hear that he's going to be back because he's the one guy. I mean, you can build something. You can build a rotation around a guy like that. You know, yeah, and I he, think he feels like he owes the Cubs because they stuck by him, you know, through some tough times. There's two things that come to mind when I think of you, Darvish, um, right now. And the first thing that comes to mind is just how incredible uh, his recovery has been uh, from his surgery. I mean, I think he, he, it appears as though he's going to be one of those special players that's not impacted by it at all. If not, maybe it makes him even better. That's number one. And number two, you know, I, I really think that 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 he's a stand-up guy. And, and just like we talked about, he, he just um, he felt as though he owed the Cubs something for the Cubs sticking by him. And we're going to, you know, we're going to reap the benefit of it. And I think, like I told you, I think by this, by spring of next year, he'll be our number one starter. That's what and, I think. You know, and also there's another dynamic here. He and his family really, really like living in Chicago. Right. Like house on Lake Michigan up in the northern suburbs, you know, in Evanston or something. I mean, he <clears> and his family <throat> like it here. So, you know, yeah, you know, which is great because usually the the um, Asian players that come from overseas, whether it's Korea or Japan, prefer the, the West Coast, San Francisco and Seattle and, and out there. So it's good to see that it use just a, a stand up guy, as we've pointed out. And I, I just think that <clears throat> I think if I was a younger Cubs player, I would look up to a guy like him because he just doesn't complain, does his job, tries really hard, and takes it personally. That's yeah. what else can you what else can you expect from somebody? That's right. Well, now what can speaking of expectations, what can we expect from David uh, from David Ross? I mean, there's been a so, lot, you know, Grandpa Rossi, all that stuff is out the window, and so, he managed so, his friends. So he was he was introduced um, a few days ago. Um, as the new Cubs manager, I thought it was a very interesting press conference, not because of what Ross said, which was all the right things, but it was something that Epstein said that got me to thinking about Espada and the whole hiring process. And that is apparently Ross's first interview with the Cubs, the one that was noted in the, in the press as lasting about eight hours where they broke for coffee and all that, um, it, it was pretty much glad handing everybody was congratulating everybody else for that entire time the second interview was completely different apparently ross came prepared with a lot of files that he'd been uh, putting together on certain things and epstein was blown away wow. by ross's presentation wow. he said i didn't expect this at all we liked ross we but the second interview wasn't anything like the first it was all business from the start till the end, and it reached a certain point where David was running the room, and and he goes, we were all very very impressed. <clears throat> wow, see so, that's, that's what he that, and Epstein talked about that too, like when he yeah that uh, when he was a third string catcher, you know, with the Red Sox, and they invited him into these scouting meetings when they you know plan their make their game plans and things like that. That here here's this third string catcher basically establishing himself as the presence in the room as far as what they should do next so i thought that was yeah. very it, that was that made, it made me feel a lot better but it also you know because there's all this talk he doesn't have the major league experience he's never going to get it unless you give it to him and so to me that's a ridiculous argument because you can either be a good manager or you're not how you get to the doorstep of being that manager, a lot of them take different routes. Some of them take the Sparky Anderson, Joe Madden way. Some of them take the Joe Gir Girardi way. But, you know, some of them take the Mickey Cochran way. Uh, th there's many different ways that, that players, ex-players, have become successful major league managers. And there's no reason to think that uh, Beltran or Ross can't be successful. I just think... That's a lot about nothing. Because if they fail, they're going to get fired. That's yeah. the way it works. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting, too, though? But when you consider the National League Central next year, it is a free-for-all. It is completely up for grabs. The right. only team that can't win it is, is Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? So, you know, well, I, think, I think the Cubs are closer to the bottom than they are at the top. based on That the may be, but, but I also wouldn't be surprised if, you know what I mean? They got hot. If somebody has a good year, let's say Schwarber hits 50 home runs. You know what I mean? You, right, you just don't right. know. If, if, let's say Darvish wins 25 games. I, it, it's possible. I'm not saying it's likely, but I'm saying it's possible. And and the only team I think that is absolutely out of the running are the Pirates. You know, so. 
we, I think you're right. I think you're right. Next year, you're right. But, but we didn't even talk about the fact that the, the Pirates fired their president of baseball operations. They fired their manager and they fired their general manager. And I mean, what are they going to do going forward? And then, the, and then the owner, like Ricketts, yeah. got out and said, well, you don't know how poor we are, which yeah. is just BS. Every major every major sports owner in America, with the exception of some hockey teams, they're all billionaires, all these guys. So stop this business about how poor you are. You know what? Over the last 10 or 15 years, or going back to Neil uh, Huntington's regime in Pittsburgh, the Cubs or the Pirates were on the cusp Playoff-wise, a couple of different times. They made the choices not to fortify their, their battalion and become a real playoff and ultimately a World Series team. That That's choices that, that the owner, which his name is Nutting or something like that, made. Yeah. Uh, so I just think it was dis, it's disingenuous for any owner to talk about how poor you are. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. As a fan, I don't, I don't keep that to yourself. He's like, oh, we're not hoarding money over here. Yeah, right. Well, listen, I mean, you're basically turning off every single Pirates fan. I mean, right. yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's a it's a it's a a tire fire. It really is. So, yeah. I, you know, the the other thing that that I just wanted to we didn't really talk about the fact that um, the Cubs have um, by virtue of of player options when their contracts are going to be retaining. Um, uh, Quintana, which is, of yeah. course, at, the, at his price, they would be insane not to. Um, they let loose Derek Holland. Um, obviously, Darvish is, is opting in, and so is uh, Jason Hayward, who he would have been insane not to, even though I wish there was a way we could sh- get him to redo that contract because he's not they a $21 million man. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> they may trade him, actually. Right. I've heard that if they eat part of that salary, you know, if they maybe take 15 million of it. Yeah, right, right. You know, but I, I don't know. I don't know. You're right. But, I mean, basically we're done talking about the Cubs until there's something really to talk about. Well, yeah, there's one last thing before we, we move on is that what are they going to do about Big Dick Nick? I mean, that that they've got to make a decision there. And I think, you know, that one could cost them. Yeah. He has the best year of his career. He ain't playing for $6 million a year, I can tell you that right now. How many doubles did he hit? Uh, 49 or 40. No, no, in the 50s. He may have even gotten to 60. I mean, that's. Yeah, yeah, no, he didn't get to 60. 61 or so is the record, or so, or 63. Yeah, yeah. 58, I think it was 58. 58. Which is insane. That's an insane number of doubles. Correct. I mean, so he he is going to command a whole lot of money. Now, the one thing I think that works in the Cubs' favor is that he really likes playing here, you know, uh, and it's a special place. And he may give them a bit of a discount if he can continue to play here. He, I'll tell you something, he could own this town. He, he's Greek. There are a lot, there's a big Greek community here. Huge, huge, huge. You know, he, he would just be their darling. You know, it would be like coming home. It really would. I, I, I'll, I'll put it to you like this. What the Cubs decide to do with, with Castellanos will tell us all what their plans are for the next 24 months. That's true. In other words, if they decline, if they decline it, then you know, look, they're not spending any money and get ready for some 500 baseball people. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. All right, so let's talk about our classic movie. Yeah. Uh, and you made the selection this week, and I, I wanted to say I didn't mention this last week that I was impressed when I chose the commitments last week because I chose a movie that you actually had not seen, which I was impressed with. So, right, but I I hadn't seen it because I didn't want to see it. It's, <laughs> it has to be said. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. But you chose this week, you made the selection, A Clockwork Orange. And I'm going to let you go ahead and get started. So we're now going to move into our discussion on a classic movie. And this week, Tom made the selection. You went with A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick starring Malcolm McDowell. And uh, why don't you go ahead and get started? You chose the movie. Let's see what you have to say. Yeah, so it, this this film, which is my fourth favorite movie of all time, um, my favorite Kubrick film, I realize uh, I think that it's your least favorite Kubrick it film. Um, but it, I, I, this is a film for me, uh, was released in 71, nominated for uh, four best, uh, for 
four Oscars, including Best Picture. Um, uh, it, it, it is based on the the, six, the 1962 Anthony Burgess uh, novel, and it deviates very slightly from the novel. In fact, of all the adaptations that Kubrick did, this is the closest to the actual story of all of his films, um, which is kind of interesting. It's it's a it's a dystopian story of uh, future England that basically starts out with these um, rousing kids that are out, you know, basically raping and pillaging the town, and um, everyone tries to stop them, and then eventually it got it gets so bad that the the protagonist Alex is uh, actually um, uh, arrested, and then he's subjected to what's um, uh, called uh, some type of an aversion type of uh, technique that they use to try to take to beat the violence out of him, basically. And um, and then it appears as though it works, and then it doesn't work, and, the, and all the things that lead up to it. And then finally, Alex is released at the end of the story. And the true irony, one of the reasons why I love it, is be- he becomes subjected to some of the same stuff that he was subjecting. Like there's a scene at, at the beginning of the film that all I always stuck with me, and that is these this gang of, of marauders are running around and uh, they run into an old a man or a couple of old men I think, and they just beat him unmercifully. And I always felt like even as a 25 year old when I saw the film as an adult for the first, I saw it as a child, but it didn't make sense to me. And then when I saw it as an adult. I was like, I don't want to be that old man that's getting beat up by the kids. I, I remember thinking about that at age 25. But the reason why I love this film so much is that there's only one other movie that I've that on repeat viewings I've found other things that I missed the first time I watched it. And that was throughout Clockwork Orange. The first two or three times I saw it, I saw diff- different things that could have changed my whole thinking of the film completely. The other film, by the way, was Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was a film that I saw 20 times, and it was before I was like, okay, I get exactly what Wells was trying to get accomplished here. Um, Roger Ebert hated this film. He did. Roger Ebert, he did. Ro- Roger Ebert hated this film, and it's one of the few times I completely disagree with him. I thought it, it I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's not easy to watch. There's a, there's a reason why it makes you feel uncomfortable, but I think the story itself just holds up. You know, I I think I told you before I tackled the top 100 novels of the 20th century, and there's four or five dystopian novels on there. They were my least favorite genre that I wanted to read. I have to be on you, with the exception of Brave New World, which is just truly phenomenal. You know, it's it, it a life changing novel. Uh, but typically, I'm not a big fan of it. I'm not a big sci-fi fan, period. But I just think this this story. Um, resonated with me because I was very close to Alex's age when it was filmed. Even though Alex was supposed to be a 15-year-old, Malcolm yeah. McDowell was 27 when he filmed it. Yeah, no, well, I, 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 I don't like, of all the Kubrick movies, it is my least favorite. But the thing is, with, with Kubrick, you know, his worst movie is better than 20 movies by 20 different directors. You know what I mean? So, yes, yes. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's... I don't personally enjoy. I didn't personally enjoy watching the movie. Part, part, partly because it, it's so disturbing. It's mm-hmm. so hard to watch some of these scenes where these these boys are just so, I don't know, relentlessly violent and so cruel to so yeah. many people that they encounter. And 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 then at the end, you know, uh, the, the main character is sort of he's lionized. He's sort of you you find yourself being sympathetic towards him. And yeah. that leaves a terrible taste in your mouth. I don't know. Um, the, sa- the same imp- that same thing happened in Taxi Driver. At the yeah. end of the movie, Travis Bickle's a hero, but we all know he basically was going to be a presidential assassin if he would have got his way. That he's so, a complete psychopath, but he's... I mean, with Travis, he's he's a psychopath, but he's our psychopath. You know what I mean? He's, <laughs> well, he's it's, it's the whole duality of man, and I think that that was very well covered uh, by this story, which is, which is a good novel. I don't think it's as, is it's the best, you know, it's not 1984 and it's not, you know, darkness at noon and it's certainly not a brave new world, but it, it's a, it's an interesting story of what the future could look like. I thought it was really interesting from a trivia standpoint that in the early seventies, Malcolm McDowell ran into Gene Kelly at a Hollywood, par- uh, 
Hollywood oh. party. Oh, and yeah? he went right up to Kelly and started humming, singing in the rain. <clears throat> and Kelly turned and walked away from him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. You know, um, there's a great documentary about Kubrick. And there was an interview with Malcolm McDowell. And McDowell was talking that, that you know, after the movie had been finished, after they finished filming, uh, McDowell had to come back in and do some some voiceovers and yeah. things like that. And half of the time, he and Kubrick were working on the film and doing the voiceovers and getting the recordings done. And the other half of the time, they were just playing ping pong. Correct. And, and a few months later, uh, McDowell realized he hadn't been paid those hours that he'd worked. Right. And he, he, called, he called him up. And uh, and then Kubrick cut him a check for half of the time. Yeah, I, I knew. Yeah, I knew that story. And the reason is, just so you know, Kubrick was great at chess, yeah. and he and he dominated McDowell, who was a young man. A young person's not going to play so well against an older chess player. And but in ping pong, McDowell dominated uh, Kubrick. Yes, dominated him, and it pissed him off. Yeah. And so. I did know that they basically what they said was when when McDowell was playing ping pong, he was on the clock. That's what they said. That those were not. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it's yeah. so funny. No, but uh, and Kubrick, you know, again, I mean, he he's, I mean, you could make a case that he's the greatest director who's ever lived. He he really you, <laughs> you could have that discussion and you could make a case for that. Yeah, and, you um, could. And and there's so I many. I don't think he is, but I think he's a great one. Well, there's so many of his movies that I, I I just love, and I love to watch, and I'll watch them again and again and again. But I will never choose. It, it's very hard to choose to watch a Clockwork Orange again. You know, it really is. I have, I have to say I haven't seen it in a long time either. But but it's it's a movie that. <clears throat> I think it's maybe Kubrick's best film. It's 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 funny that, to me, anyways, pe- a lot of people today are like, well, The Shining is his best work. I'm like, The Shining isn't even a four-star movie. There's serious problems with The Shining. It, it, first of all, it's about 45 minutes too long. The editing on it was terrible. It, 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 like, it's just weird how people start to, to you know, when you, and some of his, like, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey is a masterpiece film. I think that movie gets lost in the mix, and it's in my top 20. Um, but Kubrick was, was a great director. I don't think he's John Ford, but I think he's, he's, a, he was a great director who loved the color red. Yeah, he did. He did. I, I would say my favorite Kubrick movies are, I love Paths of Glory. I watch that. Yeah. I'll watch that again and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a tremendous, 2001, I remember seeing it as a child for the right. first time and not quite understanding what was going on. What about Barry Lyndon? Barry Lyndon is an underrated movie. Right. You know, um, you know what I love the, the the special thing about Barry Lyndon <clears throat> is that he lights it in a way that's very true to the era that it's filmed in. So it's very dim and sort of uh, you know, it, it, and I, I can see why people maybe didn't like that. But I thought you know he's very I think courageous to take that step and make that decision as director. You know, um, yeah, Metal Jacket I think is probably the most interesting. I, I think it's. The dialogue is the most exciting, but then there's The Shining. So there's, and then don't forget Doctor Strangelove either. That's a tremendous. Doctor Strangelove is one of my favorite films, and I'm a big fan of Full Metal Jacket too. I, the point is, and Lolita for that yeah. matter, and the and its earliest film, the the one of his earliest films, uh, The Killing. That yeah. was a great movie. Um, so, it, it, like I said, the controversy over this film lives on to this day. It's one of those movies that I can understand where someone says, "I'll." never see that again i'll watch it once but i'll never watch that again but for me as i on repeat viewings i started seeing things that i never saw before and that made me start to think you know kubrick you're on to something here um from a from a, a, a because it's different than the the book you know not not always are adaptations from books done in fact i think mostly they're not in few instances like the godfather is a better movie than mario puzo's book in my opinion um, I think The Shining, and, I, and I'm a fan of Stephen King, but I think The Shining is a better adaptation than than The Shining story, um, because yeah. it's it because it is chilling. It's just it's just kind of a mess. I mean, t- to me, it's not his best work. I wasn't crazy about Eyes Wide Shut either, even though I do appreciate the filmmaking. But it was almost like he went through the motions when he made that movie. Yeah, right, right. So, well, 
th- this brings us not only to the end of our discussion, but to the end of our season, Leo. And, and we'll be back next year. We'll be back. Uh, what, what we usually do, a kind of a hot stove league show sometime <laughs> in January or February. Correct. And right. once spring training gets rolling, we'll be back back on the scene to discuss all the things that happened over the winter and uh, make our predictions for the for the upcoming season. Um, I want to tell you that uh, I, I just really enjoy doing this with you every week. It is a blast. Um, it's one of I look forward to. It. I love planning. I love planning the things that we're going to discuss, and uh, I love just sort of having access to your mind and and sort of tapping into the things that you're thinking about. I think it's great, great fun. I, I appreciate that. By the way, the checks in the mail. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the feeling is partially mutual. No, it's mutual. Just kidding. Uh, Leo, you ignorant slut. I won't get to say that again for a few months. Uh, so, you know, we, we both get our Sunday morning sleep-ins back. Uh, I think it's a good little thing to kind of take this time off. And we will be back in mid-January with our hot stove leave re- uh, report. Uh, with that, I bid you adieu until next season. It's been great. Have a good one. Over and out.